Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 32. We continue our studies in Second Chronicles, the life of Hezekiah. Tonight we come to verses 1 to 8 of Second Chronicles 32. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word beginning at verse 1. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many people were gathered. And they stopped all the springs of the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it he built another wall and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scenes of faith and valor, but also of great trial from old times. And we pray, Lord, that we would imbibe of the same spirit, believing in you, committing ourselves to you, and therefore courageously doing your will. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The life of any great believer yields a number of lessons and examples and Certainly, Judah's king Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings of the Old Testament, and his main achievements, at least from the chronicler's perspective, took place in the very first months of his reign. In fact, that's most of the material the chronicler gives us on Hezekiah, is the reformation of the worship of the temple. They cleansed the idols out. They reconsecrated the temple. They reconsecrated the priests. They celebrated with all the peoples coming in the Passover for the first time in many years. Undoubtedly, from the chronicler's perspective, that was the key thing that he did. Because our relationship with God, the vertical relationship, is always the most important. But undoubtedly, the most famous event of Hezekiah's life occurred in the year 701 BC, when the long menacing Assyrian Empire made its bid to capture and conquer Jerusalem under the leadership of its emperor, Sennacherib. Now, many of the believers' greatest challenges are internal. They take place in our own hearts as we struggle against the temptation to sin. We have struggles with inside the church sometimes. But we also will struggle with a fallen and hostile world that in many occasions responds to faith with opposition. Well, Second Chronicles 32 records such an episode as the mighty Assyrian Empire responded to Hezekiah's reformation of worship by sending its army to destroy the capital of God's people. Sennacherib's invasion would prove to be the kind of trial that Peter commends in 1 Peter 1.7, that which God sends as a crucible for the purifying and the strengthening of our faith. The deadly threat that Hezekiah faced proves that 
Faithful believers are not free from danger and tribulation in this life, but it does prove that God is faithful to uphold and protect his people when they trust him. He will be with us, in Hezekiah's words, to help us and to fight our battles. Well, ever since Hezekiah's ungodly father, King Ahaz, called upon the Assyrians to come into Palestine, that's actually how it all started with Ahaz, king of Judah, asking of all people, Assyria, to become involved in local affairs. He did that because he had a war going with the northern kingdom of Israel, who was allied with Syria. And ever since then, the northern menace of the savage Assyrian army loomed over the affairs of the kingdom of Judah. If you read secular history and archaeology of all the ancient kingdoms and their armies, none strikes more sheer terror because of the savagery and the cruelty that they practice on such a wide scale than this enemy, the Assyrian army. And as a result of that, in 722 BC, after many years of slicing away at the territory of Ephraim, And the northern kingdom, Sargon II, captured and destroyed the Israelite capital of Samaria. Now Ahaz, in the southern kingdom, in Jerusalem, he had made peace with Assyria, uh, particularly with Tiglath-Pileser III. He, He did so by accepting the status of a vassal, and that required him to corrupt Jerusalem and its temple with the idols that the Assyrians prescribed. Hezekiah came to power in 715 BC, seven years after the fall of Samaria. And in the years after the reformation of worship that he performed in his first year as king, he was increasingly emboldened to throw off the Assyrian yoke. There was a new Assyrian ruler, Sargon's son, Sennacherib. And when it became clear that Hezekiah was not going to be a vassal any longer, he was determined to reimpose his authority. And in 701 BC, and that is one of those dates that Christians should know. If you're from England, then you know the date 1066. That's the Norman invasion. If you're American, you know 1776. If you're a Christian, you know, well, you know a lot of dates. And one of them is 701 BC. It rings in the hearts of, our, of God's people. That was the year that Sennacherib brought his large and well-equipped army and he descended on Judah. Now the invasion of Sennacherib is also one of the more ancient events for which we actually have a lot of evidence outside the Bible in the secular records of the ancient world that in fact corroborate the record of the Bible. Uh, The Assyrians, you may remember, uh, because of Nabopolassar, a very interesting person, and the, the library that he founded. He was actually the, one of the, one, in the midst of all these warrior kings, there was one king, and he was a librarian, and he, he was, an, he was a, a liberal arts figure. And he built the famous cuneiform library that has, in fact, been found. And it turns out the Assyrians kept remarkably detailed records on all their affairs, and particularly their dealings with foreign powers. Now, an example is known as the Taylor Prism. The Taylor Prism is a six-sided stone column that records the exploits of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria during this time. That artifact is currently found, housed in the British Museum in London. Should you find yourself with a day to kill in London, I would commend to you the British Museum. Its Assyrian collection and its Chaldean collection, its Babylonian collection, is absolutely astonishing. You'll, you'll see the black stela of Shalmaneser, 
with its reference in 900 BC to Joash, and you'll see the Taylor prism, which has the record from Sennacherib's propaganda perspective of these events. It says, for instance, that Hezekiah the Jew did not submit to my yoke. And it further states how the Assyrian lion pounced on the fortified cities of Judah. He took 46 fortresses. Now that pretty closely comports with the biblical record. Second Chronicles 32.1 agrees with this account. It says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified city, cities thinking to win them for himself. In fact, he did, in fact, take them. The record of 2 Kings 18, verses 14 to 16, says that Hezekiah was so unnerved by this, the actual appearance of the Assyrian army, and they start knocking off and overwhelming your, your outlying forts, was enough to cause Hezekiah briefly to lose his nerve. He actually sent out a peace emissary to Sennacherib. He actually stripped the gold off the door of the temple and sent that gold to Sennacherib, 2 Kings 18, 14 to 16. But Sennacherib was not buying it. He was not going to be bought off that easily. He advanced to Jerusalem, and as we'll see later on in the chapter, he actually subjected the city to a siege. Now here's how Sennacherib's record puts it. I besieged and I took Hezekiah like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem his royal city. That is pretty much a perspective on what did happen. Now the invasion of Sennacherib is so important to the Old Testament that it's recorded several times in the Old Testament. It's found in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapters 32. It's found in chapters 36 and 37 of the prophet Isaiah who was alive, was a contemporary of Hezekiah. Now, for the chronicler's purpose, the, re- the relationship that he wants to heighten is the relationship between the worship reforms that Hezekiah previously had done and this military crisis that now occurred. Look at how he begins in verse 1. After these things and these acts of faithfulness. So instead of disassociating this military crisis with the worship reforms that Hezekiah had done, the chronicler actually deliberately associates them. It was, he urges, the removal of the idols and the restoration of true worship that prompted and at least in large measure caused this invasion and this siege that that afflicted the people of Judah with great fear. Now this invasion of Sennacherib on the heels of Hezekiah's worship reforms proves that obedience to God does not automatically produce tangible, at least immediately tangible, earthly effects. Martin Spellman, uh, Selman points out that, in fact, in the Chronicles, uh, most of Judah's godly kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and now Hezekiah, faced worldly conflict precisely as a result of renewed faithfulness to the Lord. The two actually went together. One of the most predictable effects of a a reformation of their faith and worship and practice and and a renewed commitment to the Lord was an attack from the world. Matthew Henry points out that sometimes God is the one who arranges this. He brings his faithful people into trouble for the express purpose of strengthening and confirming their faith. Henry puts it, that he might show himself strong on behalf of his returning, reforming people. He brought this trouble upon them that he might have the honor and might put on them the honor of their deliverance. 
God allowed, Henry argues, this crisis so that he could glorify himself in the deliverance that would come through their faith. Well, the chronicler refers to Hezekiah's cleansing of the temple and his reformation of true worship as these things. When he says, after these things, that's what he's talking about. And he also describes them as Hezekiah's acts of faithfulness. And this faithfulness to the Lord inevitably meant, here's the thing, that if he was going to renew his commitment to faithfulness in the Lord, that that correspondingly meant that he was going to be unfaithful to his Assyrian overlords. That's the way it goes. If he was faithful to God and his word, he was inevitably and de facto being unfaithful to his worldly master. You do realize the ancient world knew nothing of the modern separation of church and state. And so the idolatry that Ahaz had accepted and had spread in the temple was actually an expression of his willingness to obey Assyria. And his fealty to Tiglath-Pileser, of all people, was in fact corresponded with by a disobedience and a rejection of the lordship of God. Uh, Conversely, Hezekiah's determination to be faithful to the Lord inevitably and de facto made him a rebel to Assyria. Andrew Stewart comments that the idols brought into Jerusalem had been a sign of Judah's political subordination. So when Hezekiah reformed Judah's worship, he cast out the foreign idols, the Assyrians became uneasy. Hezekiah knew that he was setting out on a collision course and that sooner or later the trouble would come. Well, my friends, what Hezekiah experienced 27 centuries ago needs to be learned again by Christians today. The idea that the church of Jesus Christ can be faithful to God's word while retaining the acceptance of a pagan uh, culture is folly. The idea that we may be warmly received, that we can positively have a warm, welcome relationship that we're influencing the world while at, at the same time being faithful to God, that idea is refuted over and again in Scripture. Hezekiah again does it. Here's how the Apostle James put it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James 4, verse 4. There's a verse we need to remember. Jesus said, because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 19. He added, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. John 15, 20. Now, Hezekiah's example reminds the church today that accommodation to the world and its practices involves the same nature of idolatry and infidelity to God that Ahaz showed when he corrupted God's people through the bringing in of physical idols into the temple. At the same time, Hezekiah's resolve to stand boldly for God through obedience to his word says we need to be ready. Jesus says you've got to count the cost. If we're going to say, hey, let's honor the word, let's do what the Bible says and just leave it at that. Let's not compromise. Amen to that, but, 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 but be ready. Be ready. That's the lesson. You are prepared to be marginalized, falsely accused, even persecuted. It is part and parcel of our union with Christ in faith. Paul provided the perspective that Christians should embrace. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Jesus, you should not only believe on him, but also that you should suffer for his sake. 
Well, when the impending Assyrian invasion was drawing near, and especially as the process of knocking off all the fortresses was actually going pretty well for old Sennacherib, Hezekiah understood clearly that he needed to prepare Jerusalem for attack. And sadly, we learned he tried to buy off Sennacherib. That wasn't happening, and so he had to get ready for a siege. And verses 2 to 6 record the preparations that he make by which Hezekiah uh, combined his faith with a zealous display of works. This was faith working in order to safeguard his city. Now, the chronicler has often emphasized in his many accounts the primacy of prayer. You think of Second Chronicles 20 when wonderful Jehoshaphat learned that there was a, an outbreak of a mass enemy army right on the other side of the, of the Dead Sea and he, he summoned all of Israel, all the men, all the women, all the children. That's the language of, of Israel. And they gathered at the temple and he, he prayed, oh Lord, we do not know what to do. Our eyes are on you. And, and one of the lessons was prayer comes first. Well, Hezekiah is in fact going to prayer, pray. He's going to offer with Isaiah's help one of the great prayers of the Old Testament. But he also combines his prayers with zealous activity. And the Bible shows that there is no conflict between prayer and works. In fact, prayer should motivate us to faithful works, just as our work should always rest in dependence on God through prayer. Matthew Henry says, those who trust God with their safety must then use proper means for their safety, otherwise they tempt him and do not trust him. Well, we're told that Hezekiah took counsel with his officers and he proposed three preparations before Sennacherib arrived with his armies. And the first, in verse 2, is he, he took steps to secure a water supply for the city while at the same time denying it to the enemy. Verse 2, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. Now to this day, should you, go to, should you go to Jerusalem, and you said, Pastor, what are the things we should see in Jerusalem? I'm almost certainly going to say, you need to go see Hezekiah's tunnel. Because there's about a, a kilometer long tunnel cut through the rock, and they started from both ends, and they actually met in the middle. It's actually an engineering marvel of the ancient world. And it was done by Hezekiah, his reign, his engineers, in order to make the waters of the Gihon Spring, it was one of only two water sources for the city, it was enabled to bring those waters inside the city to allow them for the people and to deny them to the Assyrian besiegers. In fact, prior to that, the, there were irrigation ducts that went out from the Gihon Spring to allow agriculture. And we read that the people actually stopped those all up. And they, they broke them down so that the, uh, the Assyrians would not be able to enjoy them. Uh, look at verse 4. The people who did this said, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Well, large armies need a lot of water. But because of these labors, Sennacherib and the Assyrians would be thirsty when they camped outside the walls of God's city. Now, secondly, a major effort was made to shore up the fortifications of Jerusalem. Verse 5, he set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside of it, he built another wall and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. Now, you may remember in the reign of Ahaz, his father, uh, Jerusalem had been sacked by an attack of the Israelites and the Syrians. And it seems that the city walls had never fully been repaired. 
In fact, in most cases, a provision not to repair your broken walls formed an important part of a subject nation's submission to a greater power. By leaving your city militarily vulnerable, that showed that you were not about to revolt. And one of the things that would prompt a response from your overlord if he learned that you had repaired your walls. Well, he's going to do that now. Archaeologists have found abundant evidence of massive fortification works dating to the time of Hezekiah guarding the western side of the city, including, as the text says, the ancient Millo section of the old city of David. Now, the walls they found, dating from his time, were seven meters thick. They're actually the thickest and strongest Iron Age fortifications ever discovered by archaeologists in Palestine. Why is that? It's because the Syrians were famous for the massive battering rams. This was their thing. They were battering ram people. and They would knock down your walls. And Hezekiah says, well, it's not going to be so easy. Seven meet- They knocked down houses to get the stones. And the seven meters thick walls are what the archaeologists discover he found. Uh, well, having secured the water supply while denying it to the enemy and massively improving the city's fortifications, his third preparation involved building up the army that would defend the city. Verses 5 to 6, he also made weapons and shields in abundance, and he set combat commanders over the people. Now, here's something any reasonably competent king would do. He began arming the able-bodied men of the city, and he put seasoned veterans in command of them, and they were training, no doubt. And there was a, a, a massive militia force raised and equipped from the ranks of the people under seasoned leadership. Now, let me say that Hezekiah's activity in preparing Jerusalem for this siege presents an outstanding example for Christians today, particularly those who wish to be prepared for the onslaught of the world against our faith. Maybe you're a parent and you're raising Christians. Yes, pray. If you're not praying, you don't understand. But you should also be reading the Bible to your children. You should be bringing them to church and instructing them. There should be family work going on in your home, family worship going on in your home. There should be uh, all kinds of, in fact, one of the things I love as pastor is the baptism of little children are the baptismal vows. And people who have their babies baptized here will tell you that I look them in the eyes when they take those vows because I, I, we want them to be serious by all the means of God's appointment to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we are faithfully dependent on prayer to raise our children in according with the precepts of the Bible to do otherwise is extraordinarily dangerous. What about the work of the church? What about evangelism and discipleship? Yes, we should be praying. But I think that the strengthening of prayer in our church has been a particular source of spiritual power to our congregation. But we're to be preaching and teaching the Bible. There's to be Sunday school classes. We're to, do, we're to engage in witnessing. We're to have opportunities for Christian service. What about the defense of the faith? That's so greatly needed in this time when uh, neo-paganism and worldly philosophy belittles and undermines Christian faith. That's one of the things I don't like about the Easter week. It was a wonderful Easter week. But I stood in the, in the line at Walgreens and I had to look at the latest issue of National Geographic with their Jesus issue. And I just kind of groaned at the kinds of, I almost bought it, but I didn't want to give them the money. Uh, 
There probably would have been some good sermon illustrations in there, so I should have done so. But just the, the attacks and the claims that they make against the Bible, what are we to do? We're to pray. We're also to write books. We're to teach seminars. We're to train believers. Our young people are to be trained in intellectual tools to answer the objections of a hostile philosophy and cultural assault. Prayer and works go together in this way. We pray, we work, we work, and we pray. And yet there are critics of Hezekiah who charge that all this energetic preparation of Jerusalem did involve a primary trust in human strength rather than God's. Now, I think that's unfair from Chronicles, but the problem is the Bible elsewhere. Because the person who makes that charge is none other than the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 22, verses 8 to 11, he mentions the very three items that I just mentioned that Hezekiah did. The training of an army, arming the populace, diverting the waters of the lower pools, Isaiah says. This massive improvement of the city walls. And Isaiah cites them as evidence of a lack of faith in the Lord. Here's how Isaiah summarizes in Isaiah 22, 11. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Richard Pratt summarizes the prophet viewed Hezekiah's military preparations as a rejection of dependence on God. He cites all these works as an example of wavering faith. Well, if Isaiah was referring to these preparations by Hezekiah and It's extraordinarily likely that he was. Hezekiah was the king during his time. It does correspond more or less exactly to what is cited here. The chronicler presents counter evidence that suggests that at the least Hezekiah took the admonition of the prophet to heart. Nothing wrong with that. The word of the Lord warns us and rebukes us and says, hey, be careful that you're not doing this. And we would be wise to do so. And it seems from the chronicler's perspective that Hezekiah took Isaiah's concerns to heart. And we read that he gathered his newly armed soldiers of the capital and he brought them with their commanders into the, into the square and he gave a speech to them. And as Hezekiah gives a speech which really contains his theology of courage, we've seen the courage and the zeal of his works, but, but now he works out the theology behind it. And it's wonderful that he does not give the kind of speech that an unbeliever would give. I'm a former unbelieving military commander. If pre-Christian officer Phillips had been there, I would have said things like, there's eight meter thick walls. Look at the weapons you've been given. You have veteran commanders. We, 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 we're going to stand together. It's the kind of speech I would have given. We can do it. Let's, let's not falter. By the way, if we don't, we're all going to be slaughtered, so let's do. That's the kind of speech an unbeliever would give. That's not at all what Hezekiah says. Look in verses 7 to 8, what is undoubtedly a synopsis of his speech. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God, to help us and to fight our battles. Raymond Dillard describes Hezekiah's speech as a classic summary of Israel's holy war ideology. And it starts with the Bible's oft-repeated exhortation, be strong and courageous. And when I think of those words, I think of Saw of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, when young Joshua taking over for Moses, who's gone, And now he's supposed to lead the tribes of Israel, and they weren't that impressive. He's supposed to conquer Canaan. 
And you remember the angel of the army of the Lord came to him and he said, be strong and courageous. That was the message to young Joshua. And that's the message that resounds throughout biblical history. We are to, uh, we face fearful enemies. Hezekiah and his people, the people he's talking to, are going to be pitted against those most efficiently cruel soldiers, the Assyrian conquerors. They're about to arrive before their spirit. This would strike terror even in stalwart hearts. But he urges them they were not to abandon their city. They were not going to concede to the Assyrian demands to abandon the true worship of the living God. They were going to be strong and courageous. Now he gives three reasons for this. Why they should not give in to fear, even though the enemy they faced had almost never lost. They had destroyed many cities like Jerusalem. Well, first he urges, for there are more with us than with them. Now, I'm sure many of them were going. Uh, do we have reinforcements coming? Have we do we have an, an alliance with Egypt? These are the kinds of now these are the kinds of things that Israel was was critiqued for. That would be an abandonment of the Lord. Without the slightest doubt, Hezekiah is referring to the unseen forces of God. He's referring to the angels, and I hope your mind is thinking back to the time with the prophet Elisha in Second Kings six. Elisha with his manservant Gehazi are surrounded in the town of Dothan by the Syrian army. And they've got him. They've got him trapped. But, but Elisha's perfectly calm, and Gehazi, the servant, is really upset. And Elisha makes the comment, do not be afraid. He gives the same reason Hezekiah does. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Well, his servant goes, and he looks, and he doesn't see what he's talking about. And so Elisha prays. It's a good prayer for, to pray for ourselves sometimes. O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. First, Second Kings 6.16. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and the chariots of fire all around Elisha. On what basis did Hezekiah expect that there were actually angels present? Psalm 37, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear them. And you might be thinking, that's really a, a slim read. We'll keep reading the end of this chapter. Because that faith is going to pay off. There were unseen powers, and they were greater, yes, than the mighty host, 185,000 strong of Sennacherib. That was reason number one. Do we doubt that there are angels involved? I, I, I'm not asking you to imagine there's angels. Don't try to figure out wh- where the angel is standing, what he's looking like. He's not looking like the ones in the movies. I assure you of that. But we should trust that God does work. The psalm is true. The angels, how many times have we in an unseen way, just as Hebrews says, we may have entertained angels unawares. How many times have we been assisted in our desperation by the angels of God? By faith, we should assume that we have. Remember that when you find yourself in despair or fear. Now, secondly, the defenders of Jerusalem should be courageous because Sennacherib came armed only with the faltering strength of human might. With him is an arm of flesh. Hezekiah's point is that for all the blustering show of the Assyrian Lord, he could not rely on any true source of divine power. Why is that? Because his idols were frauds. Behind these deities he was trusting, there was nothing. The, The idols are vain. There's nothing there. There is no God. All he had was the, the, the arm of his own flesh. Now that does not dismiss, by the way. That's not to say, well, there's no problem. 
But Hezekiah was putting in perspective the situation they faced for those who, on the other hand, enjoy the privilege of prayer to a God who is there. And, and that is the third source of their, of their courage. That they could rely on the covenant faithfulness of God and his aid. Here's the real, this is the true source of their courage. Verse 8, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. This is, we go back to the earlier claim in Joshua 1 verse 9. There's the full statement given to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1 verse 9. Well, we're going to, our next return to Chronicles, we're going to see what actually happened. But I'll tell you this, they don't give in. And the enemy does everything they can to terrify them. There's an actual terror campaign that is launched against them. Clearly they had previous experience of causing defenses to fold just by sheer terror, but it doesn't happen in this case. Why is that? Well, Matthew Henry says, a believing confidence in God will raise us up, be above the prevailing fear of man. These are words for us. Be strong and courageous because with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Well, the chronicler concludes by noting how effective was this speech in overcoming fear and in giving to them a spirit of courage and faith. Verse 8, and the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. You know, if you look in church history at times when the Christian church showed remarkable courage, you will almost always see leaders like this who by example and then by the teaching of God's word inspired the people to trust in a God who is sovereign. This is why these doctrines matter. That he's a sovereign God, he's an almighty God. The teaching of the, of the actual doctrines, one of my favorite ways this was put was by John Knox, exactly this kind of person, in a time of fear and overwhelming power. And he made the statement that one man with God is the majority. Do we believe that? We believe that, that we trust the Lord. We're not at war with the world, but the war will at times be at war with us. Faithfulness to God will lead to the enmity and the opposition of the world, but he will be with us. He will strengthen us. We can be strong and courageous. This word, they were encouraged. The Hebrew word literally means that they leaned themselves on God. This is why so many of the psalms are so beneficial. I was with one of our saints recently who was in the hospital. She's in a difficult situation. Uh, I asked her, is there a psalm you'd like me to read? And she said, oh, pastor, would you read Psalm 121? Oh, yes, I will read it. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Whence comes my help? This is a King James-only person, so I can go back back and forth on these hymns. Whence cometh my help? My help comes from, from, from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Do we believe that? That he knows us, he's with us. The, the very maker of heaven and earth is our help. Well, if we do, we will be strong and courageous. Well, let me conclude by just pointing out if Hezekiah, in the year 701 BC, 700 years before the coming of Christ, if he was able to marshal this theology, covenant theology, the resources of faith and the truth of scripture regarding God in such a way that he could encourage these people so much that they were willing to stand against Sennacherib and an army of 185,000 savage Assyrian soldiers. 
How much more ought we, Christian people in the church, armed with the New Testament teaching, be able to stand courageously against the threats that we face today? Let me just point out some of the things the New Testament teaches us that ought to cause us to respond as Hezekiah urged them to do. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you facing trouble? Is there a diagnosis that's come and it's terrifying? We've seen just recently, this happens to Christians. One day they feel fine, next day they go to the doctor, a week later they may be dead and there's a process they fear or there's all kinds of other things. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are justified by faith. You have peace with God. You are in favor with God. You are his people. You may pray to him. Never forget that faith in Jesus gives you access to God and you may pray and know his love. Let me give you another passage. It's one of my favorites. It's Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. It's about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. God raised him, the resurrected, ascended Jesus, from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. And he gave him, this is the great part, as head over all things to the church. And so the Savior who loves us, who came into this world and died for our sins, he, authority has been given to him over all things on behalf of and for the sake of the church. Does that mean we're never going to have fears, tears, trials? It does not mean that. Does that mean we'll never tremble at alarming news that we will never have tears on our faces it does not mean that but it means that everything that we will face is in the sovereign hands that once were pierced out of love for the redemption of our sins oh we can be strong and courageous all things have been given to him who loves us how about hebrews seven twenty five? consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them there will never be a time in all eternity when your savior the high priest who makes intercession for you when he is not living and is praying for you what a thing it is to know not only that we may pray to God the true and living God through Jesus Christ but that Jesus Christ is praying to the father for us it enables us to be strong and courageous. Hebrews thirteen five to 6, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? One last one, Hebrews ten thirty seven to 38. Yet in a little while, and the coming one will come, he will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's a necessary connection. Do we believe Jesus is coming back, that the trials of this world are leading through faith to his eternal glory? He's going to make all things right. We do. Well, then we, we don't compromise. We don't bow the knee to the idols of the world. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, here's the question. I'll conclude with this. How do we know that we've done this? How do we know that we're part of this heroic band that Hezekiah has raised in Jerusalem, that we've really trusted God, that we know him to be a sovereign, almighty, and faithful Savior? How do we know? We know when we stop compromising with the world because of fear. 
That's how we know. One of these arguments that we have to do it the world's way because no longer have any traction with us. That's how we know. When we go on declaring the gospel truths to the world without fear, without corruption of the doctrines, when we do the work God has given us to do, not trembling before the dreadful powers of the world arrayed against us. We know that we believe these things indeed when we stand with Hezekiah and the saints of all generations and they speak to us today, be strong and courageous. For with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Father, we thank you and we give you glory for these truths. And this distant event, Lord, is not disconnected from us because we are your people today. Today is the day when we are the saints living on earth. And we're grateful we don't face this savage Assyrian army. But Lord, we have enough to make us tremble. But you do not change. In fact, Lord, you have even revealed yourself in your sovereign faithfulness and the efficacy of salvation through the blood of Jesus. Lord, you have proven yourselves even more. And so, Lord, would you make us strong and courageous? Would you give us a real dependence upon you that is faithful to do the things your word teaches us to do? Lord, forbid us from relying on our works, from having more confidence in the things that we're doing, even our obedience. No, Lord, help us to realize it is always and only you who gives the increase. But Father, give us zeal and deliver us from fear that we would stand against temptation, that we would not bow to the idols of our age. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.